And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Sunday, April 10th. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller, breaking everything down, taking a look at bats, starting pitchers, relievers, everything you need to know going into tonight's weekly waiver run, or if you play in a league with first-come, first-serve moves, this show should help you in those situations as well. Today we begin with the Bats Beller, and we'll talk about a player we discussed on last week's show because there's a wider universe of leagues in which he is still available, and that, of course, is Yermin Mercedes. He's still out there in 40% of NFBC online championship leagues. That's a 12-team league. I think it's in part because he's UT-only in those leagues, and a lot of teams already have a UT-only bat, so you can't really find a way to make him fit in the lineup. But there are some sites, I believe ESPN is among them, where catcher eligibility is something that Mercedes has by default. And that leads us to sort of a different question. Is he doing enough to be considered a top 10 or top 12 catcher in leagues where he has that eligibility? I think he is, and I think he's – I look at it more even as a do I want to take the chance that he can do enough to be a top 10 or top 12 catcher, and, and I think he, I, I think I want to take that chance. We've seen what his ceiling can be in a you know in a one-week situation. We're talking about a guy who was AL Player of the Week to start the season. Uh, we love this White Sox offense, and I really don't think there's any reason to question the playing time whatsoever. I think he's going to be locked in to that DH spot for the most part. He's probably not going to play literally every game. But most every game, I think he's going to be penciled in as Tony LaRusso's DH. So you put all that together, I am very comfortable taking a shot on him. Obviously, we talked about him last week as a guy who should be uh, rostered across the board, even for uh, UT-only leagues and 14-15 teamers. I think even in those shallower 10 or 12 teamers, we can get him as a catcher. This is someone you want to throw in your roster and hope that he be as a top 10 catcher because I think he's got the bat and got the lineup to do it. And I imagine in some of those more competitive leagues, those 12s where he's UT only, he'll get scooped up this week. Again, yeah, available about so 40% too. of the, the online championship leagues. But he's going to play until he stops hitting. And, you know, I'm thinking of a player uh, in your corner of Chicago. You know, you're obviously a Cubs fan. People can see the logo if they're watching us uh, on YouTube. <laughs> I wondered if the arc for Yermin Mercedes this year could be similar to that of Brian Lehare way back when. <laughs> oh, totally man. different kind of player because Mercedes doesn't strike out nearly as much, but sometimes you can have a player who produces at an exceptionally high level for a half a season before the league can finally make enough adjustments to get that player out consistently. And I think it's harder to do that with a player like Mercedes who puts so many balls in play. Uh, but someone was asking, you know, what's the long-term outlook here? Because a lot of times we're talking about the waiver wire. We're saying we're playing for right now. We're right. solving this week's problems and maybe next week's problems, but we're not really worried about July and August and September. But if you said, when is it going to go wrong for Mercedes? I'd say probably sometime around the second half of the season is where I think things could look a lot different 
than they do right now. But he's going to play until he gives them a reason not to be in the lineup. Mm-hmm. And I really don't like even if he gives them reason not to be in the lineup, like who's really knocking down the door for the White Sox? It's a team that has a ton of top level talent, but not the deepest team in the league. And and I think that he would have to really go in the tank while someone like you know, Larry Garcia was also tearing the cover off the ball. Like there are two pl- factors at play that would eventually push Mercedes out of the lineup. And I think both of them are unlikely, let alone or even just one of them happening is unlikely, let alone both of them happening at the same time. Let's get to our next bat. If you like to look at leaderboards a little more than a week into the season, you're going to see Tyler Naquin's name atop several of them. Five homers already, 14 RBIs. It's been a great start for him. A couple injuries in that Cincinnati outfield have opened up a little extra playing time. My question for you is, with Naquin, is there enough here for the Reds to justify scaling back the playing time of Jesse Winker and Nick Senzel by design, or is this just a fast start? Yeah, that's where you got to really get a little bit concerned about Tyler Naquin, I think. It's just very hard for me to buy that they are going to scale back playing time for either Winker or Senzel by design. Maybe they will do it, but Naquin's going to have to keep hitting not quite this well because you know then he would be uh, having a Mike Trout season, but something close to this well for them to want to pull those guys out of the lineup when they're healthy. Can he do it? I think he can. I mean, we talked about this with C. Trent Rosecrans, our Cincinnati Reds beat writer, earlier this week, and this was the sort of player that Naquin was expected to be in Cleveland, uh, finished in the top three in Rookie of the Year voting back in his rookie year, and then just never was healthy from that point forward. Now he's got a uh, he's got that health on his side uh, and he's taking advantage of it while some other players on his team don't have the health on their side, but I still think when everyone is healthy, you know, David Bell's going to want to write Jesse Winker and, and uh, Nick Senzel's name in the lineup every single day and so that's where things get dicey. I think you go get him right now. He's playing a bunch right now. He's hitting everything in sight right now and you worry about those problems down the road as you said. We're solving today's problems, we're solving tomorrow's problems and Naquin can definitely be a solve for those problems. Yeah, and I think when you look at the schedule for the upcoming week for the Reds, you do have to temper your bidding a little bit. Uh, they will they will actually see Cleveland, which is pretty interesting. Gets a, a revenge opportunity nice and early yeah. in the season. Uh, but if you look at the matchups, it's uh, only one lefty. So, you know, six games, five righties, not a terrible spot for him. He may get one of those games off now that the rest of the outfield rotation is mostly healthy. I think this is bad news for Shogo Akiyama, though. I think if you were looking at Akiyama as a guy that was going to come in and kind of pick up the spare playing time in the outfield, Naquin has at least staked his claim to that share of the workload. So I like what we're seeing. I think he's always been talented. Like you mentioned, the injuries have been a big problem for him. I would not go overboard with my bid, even though this has been a great start for him and the plate skills have looked really good early on because I just don't see that much long-term playing time. I think he's very much a Band-Aid. Uh, the guy that I actually really like in the outfield this week is Tim LaCastro. And with Cattell Marte going to the IL, that leaves LaCastro with a chance to be the regular center fielder, at least until Dalton Varsho gets recalled and then you know Varsho moves around between a couple of spots, between catcher and center field, maybe the corner outfield spots as well. But since the Marte injury, we've seen LaCastro lead off each day for the D-backs. So you get a guy atop the lineup, 
and someone who's got plenty of speed. I believe he's now 28 for 28 as a base dealer in the big leagues. Teams can't catch him, even though they know that he wants to run. So I'm definitely in on LeCastro Beller. I, I think there's a little bit of power. It's, it's like single-digit home runs over a full season, but there could be a difference-making amount of speed, and we've seen him at least hold his own in the batting average category so far as a big league player, a career 258 guy with that 362 OBP. So definitely kind of your typical lighter-hitting speedster, but not the lightest of the light-hitting speedsters. And something I'll just add to this with Tim LaCastro, and this is something I was saying about Kevin Biggio as someone who was off Kevin Biggio uh, this uh, draft season, is that the 28 for 28, like I, I don't see that as someone who's bound for regression. And LaCastro's got a ton of speed, but also you don't go 28 for 28 unless you are a very smart, savvy, skillful base runner and base dealer. This isn't just about outrunning the catcher's throw down to second base. This is a guy who gets very good jumps off of pitchers, who knows how to read pitchers, who knows how to time his jumps well. And that is something that is, I think, just as sustainable as a skill, as speed is, uh, even for you know a guy at any point in his career. So I love seeing that. I think that when I see 28 for 28, just like when I saw 20 for 20 for Biggio, that doesn't tell me, uh-oh, he's bound to get caught a few times. It tells me this dude knows exactly what he's doing when he takes off on a pitcher, and that makes me want to buy the stolen base upside even more than I already would based on the numbers. Yeah, he's in the 100th percentile for pretty sprint good. speed, so that's it's pretty good. So it, it's legit speed. It's not just the guy who chooses his spots carefully. It's a guy that's also an absolute burner. So I think that also sort of preserves the playing time, where even if he's not necessarily locked in as the leadoff hitter because he's a good defender in center field, that keeps him pretty stable, at least for the time that Marte is out. I think Marte is at least a few weeks away from even being close to getting back in that D-backs lineup. Let's talk about another one of the great early season stories. Akil Badu, he's been stuck in the bottom third of the order so far in Detroit. And there's no real reason for him to be stuck there all season. If he hits, he'll move up. There are enough spots where they can shuffle some things around and they'll prioritize getting him even more plate appearances than they have to this point. Uh, we're seeing the lineup on Sunday. He's not in it. It's a start against the lefty. So it's going to hold up where I just don't think we're going to see him get a lot of starts against same-handed pitching. So he's a little bit schedule-dependent for more shallow leagues. If you're in a daily moves league, that certainly adds the appeal. The Tigers do have a seven-game week coming up. That includes a couple starts against lefties. So he should play about five games during the upcoming week. Uh, Astros and Oakland are the two matchups. So what do you make of Akil Badu as a guy who, as a Rule 5 pick, hadn't played above high A and actually had that season in 2019 at high A cut short due to Tommy John surgery? Yeah, 20 years old, though, that season, right? So, I mean, the age is still is still right for the level. And, uh, yeah, 22 years old now here in his first Major League season. You look at this Detroit team. You look at the way he started. This guy's got to play basically every day. Like you said, maybe sits uh, more often than not against lefties, but – Otherwise, he's going to be out there for the Tigers. So I think he's another guy who hits this right combination of you know playing time, opportunity, underlying skill set. It all feels there to a degree that makes me want to get in on Badu, especially with the way he's taking advantage of it. We're only talking about you know, 17, 20 trips to the plate, but still he's taking advantage. He's done everything he can do so far in the early going to uh, convince his coaching staff that he deserves more playing time. And I think that's enough. For us to buy in right now, I feel pretty good about him being someone who I would be very happy with on any of my 14, 15 uh, team leaks. 
Yeah, and I think when you when you watch some of the plate appearances he's taken so far, he has the look of a more seasoned veteran just in terms yeah. of the pitches that he's laying off of and uh, looks like a very confident player to begin his big league career, to to say the least, and certainly off to an outstanding start. Uh, but I do think you get a little bit of power and some speed right away. Could be a, an up-and-down sort of year. The batting average might not be there right away. Right, The run production could lag if he stays in the bottom part of the lineup. But he's absolutely in the conversation for 15-team leagues. People started to make moves for him last week. Uh, 12s might be a little bit tricky while he's this low in the lineup. We're talking about a Tigers lineup that's going to have a hard time scoring runs. So right. being stuck at the bottom there is a lot different than being stuck in the bottom in a place you know, like Los Angeles if you're in the Dodgers lineup, for example. Uh, but out of Naquin... LeCastro and Badu. If you're in a situation where all three are available, how would you prioritize them? I would go LeCastro first if I need speed. If I need anything else, I'd probably go. Gosh, I, I think I'm at, I feel better about Badu's bad, uh, playing time than Naquin's. I think Naquin is maybe the better player right now. Um, so if I'm really choosing between those two, if I feel like I can I can handle the speed already with what I've got, I don't need LeCastro, and obviously Cattell Marte is not going to be out for too long. I, I think I would just narrowly lean toward Naquin over Badeau because I just trust the skill set more than Badeau's playing time. Yeah, I think I'm LeCastro over Naquin in most circumstances right yeah. now just because with Senzel and Winker both healthy, Naquin's not going to have a ton of playing time at his disposal in the weeks ahead. So uh, that's the thing I'm trying to be mindful of looking ahead next couple of weeks that Cleveland series is in Cincinnati. So it's not like they pick up the DH for those matchups. So you don't have that benefit. You look ahead to the following week, you know, home against Arizona road against the Cardinals. So unless there's something that happens on Sunday that opens up more playing time for the upcoming week, I actually prefer LeCastro to Naquin. I think the bids will be smaller on LeCastro yeah. too. That's part of the problem. I think people <laughs> are going to chase the production we've already uh -huh. seen from Tyler Naquin. And instead of going for, 5% of your budget, he's going to go for 10+. Plus, and I don't think I want to commit that much budget to a player who really still looks like a productive fourth outfielder to me. Uh, Philip Evans is playing regularly in Pittsburgh right now because Cabrian Hayes is on the IL. And he can play the outfield corners too, so it's not a situation where Evans could completely disappear once Hayes comes back from his injury. Hayes is eligible to return on the 14th, so that would be Thursday, if I'm counting correctly on the fly. Not necessarily right. going to be ready then, though, so you know we'll see what the next couple of days bring in terms of news on him. But with Philip Evans, we're talking about a guy who's always had the pretty good control of the strike zone and hasn't really shown that much power in games, even in the great rabbit ball season of 2019 at AAA. Didn't hit 20 home runs despite the fact that he spent nearly all the season there. I don't know what to make of him, you know, showing some power here early on, obviously going to play a lot. And compared to someone like Akil Badu, Philip Evans is hitting between second and fifth in this Pirates lineup, a little higher in the order, a little more playing time and kind of a, a what could go right sort of guy for a team that will probably just stick with any sort of hot hand that it can find because they are among the teams that will struggle to score runs this year. Yeah, I think that uh, if he does well, so long as Cabrian Hayes is out, he's going to command some sort of playing time in the outfield. Obviously, Hayes goes right back in there at third base, best player on the team, excellent defender at third base. He gets that spot right back, but pretty much everyone else in this uh, in this lineup and for Pittsburgh is a TBD sort of player. So if Evans hits well in this opportunity that he has, and he's already got three homers and 26 trips to the plate, 
I do think that uh, he could get himself some more playing time. You love the fact that he is hitting in the top half of the order. I also think that wouldn't change, right? I mean, when Hayes comes back, I think that we would still see Evans as a guy who sticks in the top half of this order if he hits his way there. And, you know, the no 20 homers uh, in that 2019 rabbit ball season, uh, it's a little bit of, uh, of a disconcerting fact for him, especially since he was in the Cubs system. So we're talking about a guy who was playing in Pacific Coast League parks in that 2019 season. We know how that former AAA league played uh, for offense, but still 17 homers. It's not like he was that far off. We're not talking about a guy who eked his way to 9, 10, 11 homers. Did hit 17 homers and 539 plate appearances that season. I buy the playing time. I mean, I, I think that he's hit him. He's hit well enough to believe that there's going to be more playing time for him even when Hayes comes back. And that's the name of the game here, especially this early in the season. Uh, if I wasn't looking at outfield specifically, I would put him in a in a group with LeCastro, where I would say LeCastro is my number one guy that we've talked about, regardless of position. And then maybe I look at Evans as my second. Yeah, I think I would go similar with the order, where I definitely have LeCastro over Evans. But the big difference for me, because of the value of speed, mm-hmm. LeCastro, why I think I said 5% is kind of my range on him. Evans is probably more of like a two to three percent guy. I don't think it's going to yeah, take a lot fair. to get him because he's he's buried. You know, like he's just one of those right. guys. People people aren't going to chase him. There's no prospect pedigree there. There's no overwhelming tool, even though he could be one of those guys that does everything well enough to hang around a bit in Pittsburgh. Uh, there's an interesting story developing with the Dodgers. Cody Bellinger on the IL right now with a calf injury. So that's opened up a little extra playing time. And the Dodgers were on the road uh, with the benefit of the DH in Oakland earlier this week. Zach McKinstry has been playing a lot. And I think his appeal is limited more to NL only and very deep mixed leagues. But if you're in a daily moves league, a first come first serve situation at the very least, he's the kind of guy that I think you would want to pick up and maybe plug into your lineup a little bit while he's getting this extra run. I know Mookie Betts is also banged up right now, but even once Betts comes back, I think most of this playing time for McKinstry is hinging on the absence of Bellinger. So uh, buried in the lineup, but as I said before, being buried in that Dodgers lineup, no problem (laughs) at all. And this is a guy that, even though the rabbit ball year in 2019 doesn't tell us a lot about how good a player really is at AAA, if we look at something like WRC+, which is a league context overall offensive value stat, and we see a guy who is 77% better than a league average hitter at AAA, we should put a little bit of stock into that. And we saw a little bit of speed at double A prior to that from McKinstry. He's always done a pretty good job putting a lot of balls in play, a little bit patient as a hitter, and can play all over. So one of those glue guys that, as you think about this team, you know, with Kike Hernandez now in Boston, maybe he's sort of their replacement for Kike where he can step in and, and be uh, a glue guy on a loaded Dodgers team. Yeah, you can still never be sure of the playing time for anyone who's not Betts, Corey Seager, Justin Turner, Max Muncy, Gavin Lux now, right, is a, is a regular everyday player, and then Bellinger when he's healthy. We're still going to see some rotation with McKinstry, with Chris Taylor, uh, with A.J. Pollock. Those guys are going to move in and out of the lineup even while Bellinger is out, but you could do a whole lot worse than taking a shot on a guy who can play multiple positions in this Dodgers lineup. So uh, definitely, uh, I'm with you on, on the fact that we're talking deep mixers and NL only. But if you are in a league like that, he's someone who should be at the top of your list this weekend. The other player I'm watching who's done some damage in the minors is Seth Brown. I think in weekly leagues, he's a bit of a problem because the A's have six games, but three of them are against lefties. I don't know if he's going to play against those lefties, and even if he does, it's a lefty-lefty matchup for a guy who hasn't spent that much time in the big leagues, so Mm -hmm. you might not want all those stats necessarily, uh, but 
big power in the minors. You think about Mitch Moreland as a guy who's nearing the end of his career, and if they were to part ways with Moreland, suddenly Seth Brown is a first-time regular, at least on the big side of platoon, at age 28. 30 homers at high A in 2017, 37 homers with the aforementioned rabbit ball at AAA in 2019. It was 26% better than league average. So not a guy that's necessarily going to come in and set the world on fire, but a guy who could come in and provide 20 to 25 home run pop, maybe near the heart of the Oakland lineup if things fall his way. Yeah, and that that last part, though, is why I'm sort of off him, right? It's if things fall his way. Like, things are going to have – a few things I think are going to have to happen before we're really thinking about him as an a super attractive fantasy target. And you mentioned we could be talking about a big side platoon player as well. So a few hurdles in his way uh, before I'm really feeling good about going out and claiming Seth Brown. Yeah, so I'm – Taking more of a wait-and-see approach, but always good to have a few players on the watch list. I want to get your thoughts on Rugned Odor. Where could he fit with the Yankees? That was one of the two trades that went down earlier this week. Orlando Arcia went to Atlanta and got sent to the alternate site, which I don't know why they traded for him, but (laughs) here we are. They they went ahead and did that. Odor, to me, I, I think... When they made the deal, my thought was, oh, they've upgraded Tyler Wade. Like Now they have a guy that plays multiple infield spots, left-handed bat. Obviously, Yankee Stadium for lefties, we've talked about that. It's great. But how much does he play with the current build of this roster? I would say, you know, if Tyler Wade sticks around, Jay Bruce's hold on playing time might be slipping away. Yeah, I think that's really the the thing that you would take away from this in the fantasy world is that there are more tenuous holds on playing time for non-obvious starting Yankees. That's where really where I get concerned. This doesn't do anything for me with respect to Rugnet Odor's fantasy value. Uh, we know exactly what sort of player he is. Going to strike out and strike out and strike out and strike out and run into the occasional homer. And in the Yankees lineup, there might be a tiny bit of value to that because of all the run production and run scoring upside that you get just by virtue of being anywhere in this Yankees lineup. But I just, I really don't see it. We know exactly who Rugnet Odor is. I think he could be an upgrade to Tyler Wade. I think he's a nice guy uh, for the Yankees to add to the mix in real life and play a Odor, Wade, Bruce sort of rotation. But I just don't really see it in the fantasy world. He's someone who I have no interest in this weekend. So I'm going to take a closer look at him in leagues where I've got daily moves and sure. we can possibly shuttle him in and out a little bit. But yeah, I don't think in, in weekly leagues outside of AL only, don't think a whole lot has changed in the immediate future. What I am curious to see is given that we're talking about a Yankees organization that has turned Luke Voigt into a valuable middle-of-the-order contributor, yeah. one that found Gio Urshela on kind of the waiver scrap heap and and turned him into a regular at third base and unlocked a lot of his ability as a hitter. Uh, what can they do with someone who's already hit 30 home runs in a season on three occasions and has done it you know, before turning 28? That's pretty amazing when you start mm-hmm. to think about it. A lot of big league experience there. We'll see if the Yankees are able to get something more out of Odor here in the weeks ahead. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, Billy, let's get to the starting pitchers. And I'm always looking for two-start guys to max out volume, looking for favorable streaming opportunities. The two-start group could be worse. The... (laughs) We've seen names, worse. <laughs> we've seen worse. The, the names here, there's plenty of risk. There's a couple of situations where the matchups are really good and the skills are a little more questionable. Uh, but I want to start with a, a fallen ace, Madison Bumgarner, who has a great first matchup, home against Oakland, and a difficult road matchup at Washington for the second one. It has been really a brutal start to the season for him so far. Mm-hmm. What do you make of Bumgarner at this point? Because I, I think... He's one of those guys where Vila was never really his strength. It's it, it kind of one of those things where I, I look at him and I say, if he could have a late career similar to John Lester, there would still be a decent number of spots where we as fantasy players would want him in our lineups. Even if he's not necessarily a guy that we're just going to set and forget and leave in lineups consistently, maybe there's still something left in the tank here. Do you share my just glimmer of optimism with Bumgarner, even though this this combination of matchups plays for me better in like a 15-team league and a 12-team yep. league, I'm kind of borderline about it. Yeah, 12-teamer, I'm probably staying away. A uh, 15-teamer, I could get in. I do share your optimism. I think that you know, we know exactly what type of pitcher he is. As you said, Velo was never really the thing that drove him to his ace status and immense real life and fantasy value you know, earlier, uh, or I guess last decade, uh, not earlier this decade. But uh, I-, I trust him to be the sort of pitcher who figures it out, who figures out a way to be generally effective at this stage of his career. We haven't quite seen that, and I think that he's someone who was maybe hurt by his obvious skill diminishment happening at the same time as the 2020 season, so he didn't really get a full season to work on that, and I think that's what we're seeing this season, is him starting to work on that, coming to grips with who he is as a pitcher right now, and he's someone who I think can make the necessary adjustments to get the most out of what his arsenal is at this stage of his career. For this week, borderline, I wouldn't be putting too much into a bid. I wouldn't be uh, heartbroken if I did put a bid in and someone beat him, uh, beat me for him because I really don't love that start at Washington. But at the very least, he's on my watch list and someone who I think we will we'll end up talking about multiple times on this show when he is getting a two-start week. I always think it's funny if you look at the uh, roster rates and usage for the NFBC main event. Madison Bumgarner 
rostered in 95% of those leagues, started in 12% of those leagues. <laughs> That's yeah. uh, He had to start at Colorado this week, so understandable that yeah. everybody got away. And the first one on opening day at San Diego, that was a completely healthy Padres lineup too. As a lefty trying to face that lineup, I, I didn't like that matchup for him either. I do think this week is a little bit better overall. So again, in those 15-team leagues where he was on the bench in Colorado, I think a lot of those people are going to go ahead and push him back into their lineups, and rightfully so. But be careful here in more shallow formats because it could still be a pretty bumpy situation with Bumgarner. Uh, two Royal starters lined up for two start weeks, both fairly widely available. Danny Duffy and Brady Singer. They have home matchups against the Angels and Blue Jays, two teams that you're not really excited to throw pitchers against. No. And I would say lefties especially. So like Duffy, while I trust him more than Brady Singer for now and believe that Singer's the long-term better town at this stage of their respective careers, they both have a fair amount of risk given these matchups. But two at home for most pitchers, if the pitcher's rosterable in that format, it's really difficult to pass on two home starts. I I hear you, but man, like I I don't want to challenge either of these teams, and it doesn't it doesn't seem like uh, Toronto's going to get George Springer back at the end of this week. It sounds like this is still a couple of weeks away after the calf strain, but man, like imagine you also get George Springer back in that Toronto lineup the way that they are swinging the bats right now. Angels are also uh, doing you know what a lot of us thought they could do, uh, putting themselves at the top of the AL West, hitting really really well, uh, especially in the top half of that order, like. I just really don't want to mess with either of these guys. I don't think going up against these two teams, like you could, if you flipped out one of them and we were talking about a plus matchup or even a neutral matchup uh, in one of their matchups. And then you got to face uh, the year you had to face the angels or the blue Jays in the other one. I could get on board, especially with the two home start logic, but man, I, I just can't do a DVR. I, I understand where you're going for it, but I think I'm staying away from these two guys this weekend. I just don't want to face either of these offenses, especially both of these offenses. I will say, while I'm not necessarily clamoring to use Singer this week, given these matchups, the fastball mm -hmm. velocity up so far this season, about a mile and a half per hour. The uh, changeup usage also up. So this is a guy who was really a, a two-pitch guy last season going fastball slider, working that changeup in a bit more. I do think we're going to have some stretches this year where Brady Singer ends up being at least a useful streamer, if not someone who actually sticks on rosters. But this is going to be a very good test for him. I think the two-star pitcher that I'm actually most excited about of the ones we've talked about so far is Dean Kramer. Home against Seattle, road against Texas. Better stuff than people might think, but these are just great matchups. I mean, yeah, Camden Yards, you're not always excited to throw anybody in there, but Seattle's lineup doesn't scare me at all. I mean, we could get to a point in a few weeks once they bring more young players up and once Kyle Lewis is healthy where in a spot like that, you wouldn't be necessarily picking on them, but that's a lineup to pick on right now. So Dean Kramer for me out of these first four pitchers is actually at the top of my list. I'm with you, and I think that there's also, just because of the fact that he's got some youth on his side, he's got a little bit of an unknown quality to him that maybe he's got the most long-term upside to. He's someone who maybe is sticking around your roster beyond this week, especially if he takes full advantage of two matchups that you were pretty excited about in getting the Seattle and uh, Texas teams uh, against him. I feel pretty good about him, and I think, I, yeah, you know, it was, but matchup puts him over the top. I'm with you that he would be the my top target for a two-star pitcher among the four that we have discussed to this point. Yeah, mixing three pitches pretty well. Still kind of finding that mm -hmm. changeup, but uh, definitely a guy that 
I don't think people are that excited about in general who you should be excited about for this week. And if you do look further down the road, this is something I, anytime I pick up a two-star pitcher, I am looking at the following week's schedule because that sort of guides the bidding. Am I bidding like I'm going with a pitch and ditch guy or am I bidding a little extra because I think there could be some long-term appeal? Uh, home against Oakland is the start after this week for Dean Kramer. So I would say that also adds the appeal because I'm not scared of that A's lineup at all at this point. Uh, Dane Dunning gets two at Tampa Bay, home against Baltimore. I think you could argue Dunning ahead of Kramer pretty easily because there's a, a higher baseline set of skills that we've seen to this point. Mm-hmm. At the Rays, not necessarily a place that you'd love to throw someone, but the Rays strike out. like That's their flaw. They have swing and miss in their game. Very similar to the Brewers that way. Yeah, they can hurt you when things are working, but when things are not, you get that bump in Ks, and you could actually come through and actually come out with maybe two quality starts from Dane Dunning if the workload is there. I would not be surprised by that. So Dunning over Kramer for me is where I want to go. I know he's the most rostered player that we're talking about here and the one that people are the most aware of, but I think it's for good reason given these matchups. Yeah, you know, I I, I'm, I totally agree with you, and I think that uh, Dunning is the guy who leads this list as we you know look ahead to. But as you said, he's the most rostered guy, and he's the most rostered guy for a reason. And we saw some of those underlying skills with the White Sox a season ago. Had a decent run of strikeout starts with the White Sox, and that's uh, something I think he can you know carry over. Obviously, not uh, we're not going to be talking about a big strikeout guy, but uh, these matchups uh, could have him being a strikeout parading guy. In these two starts, you've definitely got an opportunity for a couple of quality starts. Baltimore, there's always going to be some win upside when you're facing that team. So across the board, I think Dane Dunning uh, checks as many boxes as you could ask for from a two-start pitcher that you can realistically pick up off the waiver wire. And I cannot for the life of me explain why Dane Dunning is throwing his fastball 77% of the time. I do not understand that usage. (laughs) I do not understand that game plan. It worked for him the first time out, but I wonder how much he'll shake things up in these next couple of turns. That would be the one thing that would give me pause. If they told me ahead of time, oh yeah, we're going to keep throwing the fastball that much, (laughs) I might come down a little bit, but I'm hoping that they'll make some adjustments these next couple times out. Uh, The Braves have a a number five starter, Waskar Inoa, who I didn't think was on the radar. I thought it was going to be Bryce Wilson or Kyle Wright or one of the usual suspects getting that opportunity. He turns 23 in May, so he's pretty young. The minor league track record isn't that great, but home against the Marlins, certainly not a bad spot. And then on the road against the Cubs, you need to catch the Cubs on a day where the wind is blowing in. Maybe he holds his own there. We're digging deep. We're talking about 15 team <laughs> leagues and yes. deeper. Definitely nothing more shallow than that. But is there any interest here, given that he outpitched some guys that were on our radar for a while to win this job? Yeah, I think we have to take the uh, take the Braves' expertise at face value here. The fact that they would go with him, uh, it tells us a little bit about you know what they think of him and what they've seen behind the scenes that we haven't really got to see up close and personal. I think this is still purely a matchup play. Uh, you love the matchup with the Marlins, and then the Cubs have been... I mean, they've had a couple of decent games, but this has been not a good offense. Uh, they've got eight doubles on the entire season. J.D. Martinez has seven this week. The Cubs have eight as a team on the entire season. I mean, they are doing nothing offensively. They're striking out still a decent amount. Like, the Cubs are winning games based on pitching and defense, and their offense, outside of Chris Bryant, really isn't doing much of anything. So I think this is an offense that right now, not only can you attack, but I think you want to attack. Maybe they figure it out eventually. There's still a lot of talent in this Cubs offense, but right now they are not going well 
as a group. It's a pure matchup play. It's one I'm not super comfortable making, but that's the argument for you know it this week. Yeah, it's a near min bid for a two-star guy. It's definitely it not a guy that you're, yeah, you're not spending up to go get him. Mm-hmm. The long-term appeal, very questionable given some of the aforementioned names that, that could be there uh, taking that job away. One other thing to consider, the Braves actually have two off days next week, so they could skip them or not give them any starts at all the following week. So it's very, very temporary appeal if you know as the guy that you're considering bidding on here this week. Uh, Aaron Sanchez, who... When the Giants signed him, I was kind of excited about it. I know there was a report that he was throwing in the mid or high 90s at the time. That was not the case. His first time out, <laughs> he's averaging 90.9 miles per hour on the sinker. I mean, he mixed other pitches really well. A lot of curveballs, decent number of changeups. It can work. I just, I just want to see another uptick in velo before I trust him. Home against Cincinnati, I, I could see it maybe working. I, I just... I'm trying real hard to talk myself into this, into the kind of in the Enoa category, near mm-hmm. min bid. Maybe you can get away with it. That second start at Miami certainly has a lot more appeal. Uh, yeah. But what do you do with Aaron Sanchez if he's available? I'm probably passing. I mean, like you, like you were just straining your voice to get through <laughs> making the case for him, trying to talk yourself into a theoretical situation in which you would be claiming him. And I think that says it all. I just hate that. I hate that Cincinnati start, even in San Francisco, with the way that team's going. And I mean, they've been hitting everything in sight with not a ton out of Eugenio Suarez, with nothing out of Joey Votto. Like if one of those two guys gets going alongside everything they're getting out of. Naquin and Jonathan India and guys like that and Mike Moustakis, like they're going to be just crushing teams. And so I really just don't want to challenge that team. And it's funny, the psychological factor of this, like if this were flipped, right, and Aaron Sanchez was getting Miami first and Cincinnati second, I actually might feel a little bit better about it. Because if you bank a good start against Miami, you're like, all right, I'm sort of playing with house money. Like this is pretty good. But if he gets rocked by Cincinnati first, now you're like, oh my God, I need like six shutout with five Ks out of him against Miami, or this is going to have been a horrible pickup. And so there's a psychological factor at play here as well. I'm going to stay away from Sanchez this weekend. I mean, the other encouraging thing, if I want to be the the devil on your shoulder trying to talk you into this, (laughs) is that he didn't walk anybody in that first start. So five innings, no walks. Bugaboo for sure for him. It's a step forward for Sanchez. Uh, Definitely. I, I, he's, he's where I draw the line. I, I'm, I'm at least considering it, as you can tell mm-hmm. by the, the tone of my voice. But <laughs> below Sanchez, there are five other two-start pitchers that I put on the rundown. Absolutely no interest in the group, really. I'll run through them real quick. Let me know if I should like any of these guys. You got Chase Anderson mm-hmm. at the Mets, home against the Cardinals. Justice Sheffield at the Orioles, home against the Astros. Adbert Elzele at the Brewers, home against the Braves, and then Trevor Cahill and Chad Cool, home against the Padres, Sans Tatis, and at Milwaukee, which I, I want nothing to do with either of those guys, with those two matchups. But even mm-hmm. that, uh, the rest of that group, Chase Anderson kind of can hold his own, but I don't want at the Mets. At like Mets. I, I think that lineup could destroy him. Sheffield's just two up and down for me. And Alzale's matchups for a guy that can really hurt himself with walks mm-hmm. are too difficult for me, too. Everyone on this list has a absolutely do not pass matchup that makes me want to stay away from them. I will say that Alzale, you know, in his first start, he got into trouble in the first inning. He had a couple of walks, gave up a home run. And then from that point forward was 
great. He was he struck out a ton of dudes. He ended up uh, getting himself under control and still making it through five innings in that game. So he's the one guy who I actually think maybe there is some long-term appeal to out of this group. But again, with that matchup against Atlanta, I just want no piece of him this week. And it's not like his long-term appeal is uh, to the extent that I am willing to grab him right now and then not activate him uh, and see what happens in these starts and then have him on my team. So uh, just one matchup for each of these guys that makes them do not grab guys for me this weekend. Yeah, um, I'm with you there. Looking for some single-start streaming options. Tarek Skubal had a rough go of it against Cleveland on Saturday. I still believe in the talent long-term. He's not available in 15-team leagues, and this is even a good number of 12s where he's not available. But in leagues that have first-come, first-serve moves where he may have been dropped after that bad start, would you go back to the well and try and use him where available going on the road to Oakland next time out? I would. I would for sure. And the biggest reason why I would is not just this matchup with Oakland, but as you said, right, not available in 15-teamers, not available in a ton of 12-teamers. There's some long-term value to Derek Skubal. You know, none of us would be surprised if he ended the season as a top, I don't know, 40-ish pitcher, right? I mean, he can def- that's, uh, that's, you know, at the high end, but it's doable. And so we're still at a point in the season where I am comfortable – taking shots on guys who could give me season-long value. Scoobles one of the few guys who can do that for you, basically, in any sort of league you're in. So I like this not only as a this-week play, but a long-term play. And I think if you're looking ahead beyond this matchup against Oakland, home against Pittsburgh is the start after that on the 21st of April. So if you're in a league that allows trading and you can make a small trade to get Scooble right now, going to be hard to do it in keeper and dynasty leagues, but in redraft leagues especially, shallow redraft leagues, you might be able to get them for next to nothing, get a couple of pretty nice starts coming up on the schedule. So I'm in like you are on Scooble. Uh, how about Jake Arietta? Is it time to let him go if you streamed him for those first two turns against the Pirates? He's at Milwaukee for start number three, and he's lined up to face the Mets back at Wrigley for start number four the following week. I think it probably is time to let him go. The first start was excellent. The second start, he was fine, but he was in and out of trouble that entire second start. A lot of walks, and we know that that's what Ariad has become uh, since his the highs of his first stint with the Cubs. This is the sort of guy who he is. He's not going to work super deep into games. He throws a ton of pitches. He can get into trouble because of the walks. The stuff just isn't quite as sharp as it was in that 2015 to 2017 run that he had. And so I really think he's a streamer. That's the sort of pitcher he is. And there's still plenty of value in him in the right matchups, as we saw against Pittsburgh. But at Milwaukee, just not quite the spot that I want to trust Jake Arietta. So he's someone who I would be thinking more of as a guy who I am cutting to go get someone who we've talked about rather than someone I'm trying to acquire to start this week. Yeah, I, I'm trying to avoid Arietta myself. So he's an easy cut for me in those mixed leagues where we took those chances on him against mm-hmm. the Pirates. Uh, speaking of the Pirates, Brett Anderson will face the Pirates after he faces the Cardinals on Sunday. So the Cardinals start on Sunday as part of a two-start week that we talked about last weekend. I got burned by the first leg of that. The Cubs got to him. <laughs> Second time through the order, they knocked him around pretty good. I felt like a genius the first time through the order, though, because, <laughs> look, the Cubs are, are fine. You could throw almost anybody against the Cubs if the yeah. as, unless the wind is blowing out, in which case, you know, don't throw anybody against the Cubs because if the ball's in the air, it's a home run. You don't want that. <laughs> uh, but Brett Anderson, low strikeout guy. We've talked about him many times before. I imagine in leagues where he wasn't picked up for a two-start week, it's so thin that he doesn't strike enough guys out to even be useful in this matchup. 
I would use him against the Pirates, even if it's ugly on Sunday against the Cardinals, because I think he can bounce back and turn that into five or six useful innings for us. This team has been exactly as advertised, right? We're, we're so used to early in the season looking at standings and seeing like these topsy turvy standings, and oh my god, the Orioles are in first place. Like ah, uh, seven games, fun with early season results. Pirates are two and six, and they won on opening day. They lost six straight games, and then they won again on Saturday. Like this is a team that is exactly as advertised, and they're without their best player in Brian Hayes. I think you could throw almost any pitcher against the Pirates if you're looking for a cheap, easy shot at ratios and win upside. So I'm with you. I would definitely play Anderson basically no matter what happens against the Cardinals later today. Yeah, as long as he's healthy, he can go against the Pirates. So if you were disappointed by the two-start week and you get further disappointed on Sunday, probably want to hold him, run him out there against the Pirates and hope that he can undo some of the ratios damage with such a a great matchup on tap. Uh, Nick Pavetta is a guy that I am... Really not sure what to make of him at this point. Yeah. I mean, we loved him in the fantasy community a few years ago <laughs> when he let everybody down. Getting a chance, though, in Boston. Velo is back up, averaging 95 on the fastball. Really just going fastball, slider, curveball right now. And not using the fastball as much as he did early in his career. So the game plan makes sense, right? Increase that slider usage. Held his own his first time out. 4Ks, 4 walks. But he gets the White Sox. So in leagues where he's available, mostly 12s. Are you comfortable taking the chance on Pavetta in that matchup? Absolutely not. <laughs> just just no way. No way. I mean, we know what Nick Pavetta is at this stage of his career. We've seen it time and time and time again. I like that he's going back to the drawing board. I like that he's mixing things up and that he's changing his pitch mix and changing his repertoire. I think that you know shows a, a thoughtful pitcher who uh, realizes that what looked like was going to be the foundation for prolonged success was not the foundation for prolonged success. So I like that willingness to experiment and tweak, but you know, this right here, I think is the cops coming to arrest you for even bringing this up DVR. It's just, uh, it's a very, very tough matchup going up against that White Sox team. And one in which like he could get into a ton of trouble. We're not just talking a tough matchup where he, you know, grunts his way through five innings and gives up three runs. Like that could be a one and a third, seven run sort of outing against that lineup. So I'm staying away. It really could be a disaster. There were two other names on the starting pitcher grid. By the way, shout out to our friends at Rotowire for doing a great job with the projected yes, starters indeed. grid throughout the season. It makes it so easy to find two-star pitchers and find streaming opportunities. But Cole Irvin, who was great this spring and has not been great since the season started, he gets Detroit at home, kind of maybe his last-ditch effort to hold that spot. I mean, you do have the concern that the A's could just go another direction if they wanted to, but A.J. Puck's on the I.L. right now, so their depth is already taking a hit. With Puck down, I'm sort of tempted in really deep leagues to throw a min-bid in on Irvin just because I do not respect the Tigers lineup at all. I think that's exactly, you nailed it. Min-bid, deep leagues, there is some upside to Irvin remaining in the rotation, and this is a, a very good matchup. And that's exactly what you're looking for in some, in deep leagues, right? Like There's a lot of value to churning the roster spot and getting a guy for one good one good start, or you know maybe we get lucky with Cole Irvin and he gives you a couple of good starts. But these are the guys who you're looking for in that type of league. So if that describes the league you're in, I think a min-bid on Cole Irvin is absolutely appropriate later today. Yeah, and in a similar vein, Daniel Castano could get a start for the Marlins against the Giants this week. And I think if you look back at his numbers, he was up at double A in 2019, 73 Ks against 16 walks, only two homers allowed in 86 innings, pitched to a 335 ERA and a 114 whip. The ratio has been pretty good for him really since low A. 
I don't think the stuff is necessarily great, but home against the below average lineup, if that start materializes, if you're thinking about Cole Irvin, you should think about Castano. And I might even say that I would take the chance sight unseen on Castano over Irvin at this point, hoping to catch lightning in a bottle for that one turn. I think I would too, and it goes back to the thing you said about the, that the ratios have basically always been good. We know the ceiling isn't super high, but you see a guy have consistently good ratios, you're gonna be, uh, you're gonna feel pretty good about him just being a, a pitcher, a guy who understands how to get outs. He's always shown a way to be able to get outs at every single level along the way. I think there's a foundation there that I trust against a lineup like San Francisco's. Got a. a- Note here from Forrest, who's watching us on YouTube. Willie Castro has a top 10 exit velo so far this season. He's interesting. The rest are bums. He may be okay. <laughs> I do like Willie Castro. I mean, they, they have a few interesting young players. Castro is among them. But they're still a lineup that overall, the way they're constructed right now, should be below average and should be a pretty soft streaming target. You, know, you get to Isaac Paredes maybe coming up at some point. Uh, that would certainly help. I don't think we're going to see Riley Green. So yeah, they, they seem like they're another year away from at least pushing themselves into that sort of average lineup kind of range. But definitely keep looking for value among that group of hitters because opportunity is certainly there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. Let's get to the closer situation this week. Yimi Garcia getting the opportunity in Miami. Anthony Bass out Garcia in. Major home run issues for Garcia at the end of his time in Los Angeles. He did make that problem go away in the shortened season, but it was not a large volume of innings. You know, Looking at some of the, the options that we've had the last couple of weeks for saves, Garcia looks a little better on paper to me, even with that flaw. Agree with you completely, and the thing that I love about him is that he's really going to have the chance to run with this job. Bass, done. Dylan Floro could maybe challenge him for this, but it's going to take Yimi's failures to give Dylan Floro an opportunity. Maybe they end up sharing it in some way, but I don't know. Garcia's locked in. That lined up, that the save he got on Saturday, it lined up really nicely for Don Mattingly to lay things out with the back end of the bullpen. You got six great innings out of Trevor Rogers against the Mets to start that game. Then you saw Floro come in in the seventh and just lined up perfectly. Garcia got uh, a couple of extra runs, right? The uh, the Marlins go out in the top of the ninth and turn it from a one nothing game into a 3 nothing game. So he had a little bit of, uh, of leeway in terms of what he was able to do, but totally shut things down in the ninth inning. And so I think he's someone who uh, maybe... You know, we we were talking about Julian Merriweather. Uh, was it last week or the week before? I can't remember. But you know, maybe Gimi Garcia is the the best closer option we've talked about. You know, right there with Merriweather uh, so far this year that is able to be someone who's grabbed off the waiver wire. I think this is a no doubt slam dunk. Go out and get him if you can. The problem I think I have is that anytime a closer like this emerges in very competitive leagues. It's probably twenty plus percent of the budget in a lot of leagues that actually <laughs> is the winning tax, bid. For sure. I don't want to give that much of my budget to the fab gods for the chance to have a closer in Yimi Garcia, even though I don't think he's bad. So 
I'm closer to like 10 or 12%. And I know that might not be enough. I, I can live with that. If, if I bid 125 out of 1,000 and don't get them, okay, you know what? Someone had to had to pay quite a bit. So now I got to bump my bid up in a couple leagues because I just threw a specific number out there. But nevertheless, like I'm, I'm in, but I'm not all in. I'm not quarter or third of my budget on Garcia, which some people out there will do because saves are just that valuable in some leagues. By the way, when Garcia was closing out that game on Saturday against the Mets, it was a one nothing game. Jacob DeGrom pitched a gem. Mets didn't score <laughs> runs. Again, yep. that's a common script. <laughs> Familiar like, refrain. <laughs> uh, happens about every third or fourth start for him. But um, Edwin Diaz was in this game. They were down 1-0. Like, it was a close game. Still a high leverage spot. And he got knocked around. Didn't even finish the inning. Are you speculating on any Mets relievers? Because the way to save money on closers, of course, is to try and get them before they become closers. If you'd bid on Yimi Garcia last week, you would have got him for like a near min bid. And the same could probably be said of someone like Trevor May or Jerus Familia or whoever it is that you like in the Mets pen. Are you interested in anybody in particular in that group? I just think that it's going to take a, a little bit more than this for Edwin Diaz. I will say that if I'm going to speculate on someone, it's probably going to be Trevor May. You know, Jury's Familia actually did some of the cleanup for Edwin Diaz. Um, maybe came in the next inning, but he definitely pitched in that game and pitched well. But like we've been down this road with Jury's Familia. Like I don't think that he's going to be the guy who locks things down for the Mets if they do end up going away for Edwin Diaz. Trevor May would be the guy who I would trust. But again, it just feels like a spot where things are going to have to go really sideways for Edwin Diaz for him to lose this job. And I don't want to even have a min-bid win on Trevor May and then sit around with him doing not a whole lot for me for a couple of weeks, hoping for Edwin Diaz to blow a couple more saves. Like, it's 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 a luxury bid, I'll say that. Like, if I've got a spot to play with, then I could be talked into it maybe, but... It's a luxury that I just don't really have on many teams, and I think most people aren't going to have on many teams either. Yeah, I understand the the situation that you're describing for sure. I, I think May is the guy that I would take the chance on. Had that rough debut, allowed three runs. Two of them were earned, only recorded one out. So the ratios look awful. A couple of scoreless outings since then. They targeted him in free agency. I, I don't have a good read on the situation as a whole. I don't think there's one clear option who's definitely a cut above, but I think May's skills stood out to me really throughout his time as a reliever in Minnesota as a guy that could capably close if the opportunity came along. So nice low min bid there. If I was going to uh, take a chance on one of those guys, it would be on May. Uh, Lou Trevino appears to be the option to close out games over Jake Diekman in Oakland. We mentioned last week, Sergio Romo could occasionally get a save. He pitches all over. He's very situational in terms of how they use him. With Trevino, I mean, the skills that you're worried about, it's a slightly elevated walk rate, a slightly elevated home run rate, but he does have good enough stuff to be a bottom tier closer, to be a, a 20 to 25 range closer if he has the job. And Trevor Rosenthal's absence is going to be a lengthy one, of course. We found out he had thoracic outlet syndrome earlier this week, so he had surgery for that. So it's going to be several months before he's even a possibility and he may not pitch again this season. That's within the range of outcomes as well. Uh, where are you at on Trevino and how do you compare him to someone like Yimi Garcia this week? I'd rather have Yimi and I just feel like he's got a, a stronger hold on the job and you know, Lou Trevino is, I think, a good example of why we should be rethinking the save category in the fantasy world because now, you know, he's got the inside track and it looks like he's going to be the guy for Oakland. Uh, and so that automatically imbues him with this pretty significant level of fantasy value. As you said, like once a guy becomes a closer, 
in saves only leagues, like you're going to have to spend 15, 20% of your fab to get him. And no one like, even the person who wins that bid doesn't like doing it. No one wants to do that. And it's not reflective of his real life value either. And that's where, you know, I start to fall off on these guys, but we're talking about this from the fantasy game. And right now, you know, I'm not going to go that high on him because I don't know if I buy that he's going to, um, you know, first of all, hold the job. I don't know if I buy that this is going to be a one guy only situation. So we're not necessarily talking about, you know, the full pie of Oakland saves going to Lou Trevino. I'm comfortable throwing, you know, 10% at him and understanding that that's probably not going to get the job done. But that's where I sit with him just based on a skill standpoint and not necessarily a role standpoint. Yeah, above Cesar Valdez, who was at, I think, 5 to yes. 7% for the bid range yeah. once he, he emerged as the option in Baltimore, but a, a tick below Yimi Garcia. I think I'm comfortable with that placement as well. Uh, the next guy we're going to talk about is pretty interesting because Corey Knable has been a very good closer before. Yes, he has. Uh, big time strikeout stuff. The Dodgers are going to be careful with Kenley Jansen's workload this season. And if you're going to have a partial closer, there's really no better team to have a partial closer on the Dodgers, right? If this team leads the league and wins, it means they're going to have a lot of opportunities to close out games. We don't know what the split's going to be and what the Jansen rules are going to be all season. How many saves would you expect Corey Knable to get, though, given the current makeup of the Dodgers' bullpen and their past history, the recent past history specifically with Kenley Jansen? Mm, I'm, I'll say eight or nine. I think it's okay. a fair number. If you if you assume he's going to give a couple of back, he's not going to maybe be the only guy who's factoring into the mix alongside Jansen. I think eight could be a number for him. But what I like about Corey Knable is that he is someone who, unlike Lou Trevino, I trust to be a contributor to ratios and Ks no matter what. Even when he's not saving games, I think he's going to get me Ks. I think he's going to lower my ratios. I like that sort of pitcher. This is a skills over role guy who actually has a little bit better of a role than we thought he was going to have as recently as you know, four or five days ago. So I, I really like Corey Knable, and I think this is someone who's more reflective of real-life value translating to the fantasy game. So I, I would go out and I would grab Corey Knable. You know, of, of all of the guys we've talked about here, the only one who I want more than him is Yimi Garcia. Yeah, I think the interesting thing here, too, is that there are similar closers or co-closers who are already rostered. Forrest yep. had a question, Knable versus Emmanuel Class A. I mean, that, that's the type of, of pitcher I think Knable can be. Really tough mm-hmm. to make a call on something like that. I think for me, there's a better chance that Class A is the guy in Cleveland than there is that Knable's just the guy for the Dodgers. I think it would take a Jansen injury or a couple more implosions for that to completely turn in Knable's favor, whereas Class A can just keep pitching well and kind of push the competition aside and just be the preferred option ahead of Karinchak and ahead of Nick Whitgren. So edge Class A for me, but any league where Class A has been rostered, I think that's the type of league where Knable should be picked up as well. Uh, definitely a good skills guy, like you said. Tons of Ks will be there, and I think eight is a good expectation for saves at this point, which you know could be a difference maker if you don't have that third source of saves in your lineup right now. Let's talk about the situation in Seattle. Keenan Middleton actually picked up a save on Saturday. The game went 10 innings, and Kendall Graveman came in before him while the game was tied, so that might give us some insight into how the Mariners see things playing out, but Rafael Montero appears to be in trouble. Yes. was not the first bad outing of the season for him. I'm a little surprised. I thought of the lower-tier closers entering the season, I thought he would be pretty good and pretty stable. Uh, so far, though, it just hasn't been 
quite as good as we saw a year ago. So if they're going to make a change, is it Middleton? Is it Graveman? And how interested are you in bidding on those two options? Dude, I thought that I nailed my Top Wars bullpen coming out of the draft. Brad Hand, Rafael Montero, Emilio Pagan. I'm like, oh, I aced this. I didn't spend any premium picks on Josh Hader or anyone like that. And I've got this bullpen with three legit closers. Like, this is this is beautiful. And now here I am. Like, are you kidding me? Kidding me, guys. You can't do anything <laughs> for me. I guess I would go Graveman. All right. I'm just gonna take the take the um the indication from the way they were used and think that, you know, that's more the traditional closer spot coming in in the tie game. So I guess I would lean in his direction over Middleton, but I would throw some bids at both of these guys. I think that Montero's in a ton of trouble. I think that at the very least, these guys are going to get opportunities and maybe Montero still does hold on to the job. Maybe they just, you know, give him a breather for a week, 10 days, something like that, and then throw him back in to a closer spot and he does well and keeps the job. But I think that, you know, something close to a min bid on both Graveman and Middleton is worthwhile. This is, the, I think, the situation where it's worthwhile, where you don't have to spend the 15% to get Yimi Garcia, right? Or you aren't speculating on a bunch of Mets dudes who, I don't know, feel like they're relatively far away from the job. This is a spot where maybe you can get away with, what do you think? You think you can get Middleton or Graveman for 4%? You think that would be enough here? 5% even maybe? I don't know if I'd be comfortable going quite that high, but somewhere in the 3-4% range I would be comfortable with, and these are guys who I think could turn into closers given the struggles we've seen from Montero thus far. Yeah, I would stay low with the bids here. I, I do like Graveman a little more than Middleton. Kendall Graveman, I never liked him as a starter. It was just such a you know, ground ball heavy kind of innings eater sort of profile but mm -hmm. he's a different guy out of the pen averaging 96 on the fastball throwing the slider more than ever still has a changeup, so he could be a three-pitch closer with velo that works that's a great yeah. arsenal to have oh, sure so I'm, I'm looking at him and i wouldn't be surprised if he ended up taking this job and, and really just kind of making it his own could they go committee? Of course. I mean, teams love to go committee because it saves them money in arbitration and they can just play the matchups and do the best they can to actually win games by using the right guy in the right spot. But I think my reservations with Middleton are really, he has walk problems and home run problems kind of similar to Lou Trevino and he misses fewer bats than Lou Trevino does. Mm -hmm. So when I look at that compared to what, what Graveman's doing right now, what he has to work with in his arsenal, I just think Graveman's stuff is a little bit better than Middleton's right now. So to break the tie, I'm airing on the side of the better stuff. Yeah, and that's always the right way to go, I think, in the bullpen, is to go skills and stuff over role, and that's more likely than not, more often than not, going to lead you to the right place. Yeah. Absolutely. So hopefully we helped you out this week with the fab running in about 12 hours or so from mm -hmm. now, depending on the time that you either watch this live on YouTube or listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed it as a pod, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. If you watch this on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe to this channel. Anything we do video wise will pop up for you that way. And a shout out to Wrigley Regular who writes, I'm new to podcasts, just started listening over the past six weeks or so. Enjoy your show and Fantasy in 15. Lots of podcasts to listen to. Mm -hmm. This show, Fantasy Baseball in 15, Rates and Barrels, and the new Athletic Baseball show too, if you just like some general baseball talk throughout the week. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. Good luck with your bids. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thank you.